G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Let's begin here. The kind of king that you take Jesus for, the kind of king that you take Jesus for, will shape the life that you lead for him. That makes sense, doesn't it? The kind of king that you take Jesus for will dramatically shape the life that you lead for him. That is, if you take Jesus as the, the, the Lord and God of your life, if he is your king and your saviour, if, uh, if he is the one who stands as the prime example of a human life well lived, uh, if he is your exemplar, Um, If he is the one that you long to emulate because you look around the world and you cannot see anyone who lived quite like Jesus. Ah, quite like Jesus. Well, then you better hope that you've got a clear picture of who he actually was. (laughs) You better hope that you've got a clear view of what he was on about and the kind of human that he turned out to be. Now, from ancient times, of course, people have cooked up all sorts of funny views of what Jesus was really on about or they've tried to foist their agenda onto Jesus and say no he was all about that and then they kind of you know imitate their view of what Jesus was. People have always done that. Um, Now here's how one historian describes one ancient representation of uh, an ancient picture of Jesus from one of Jesus' opponents or at least a, a, a Christian, an enemy of a Christian Opponents of early Christianity, writes John Dixon, the historian, opponents of early Christianity happily accepted the view that Jesus was of no great significance to the world. The crucifixion was, for them, incontrovertible evidence that Jesus was just a pretender to greatness. You get where that's coming from, don't you? If Jesus was crucified, he can't have been that great, can he? Can't be of much enduring significance if he ended up on the cross powerful testimony to this point of view, continues Dixon, has been discovered, scratched into a guardhouse wall on Palatine Hill in Rome. Archaeologists uncovered a piece of anti-Christian graffiti dating back to the second or third century. It's pretty early, isn't it? That's the 100s or the 200s, second or third century, uh, when large numbers of Christians were still being imprisoned and executed. He describes it here. The crude drawing, about 50 centimetres by about 30 centimetres, shows a crucified man with a donkey's head, indicating stupidity. Next to the cross stands a man with arm raised in adoration towards the figure on the cross. And below the image, scribbled in very bad Greek, are the words, Alexamenos worships his God. The most plausible explanation for the graffito imagines Roman guards taking perverse pleasure in deriding an incarcerated Christian named Alexamenos by depicting his Lord as a mule-headed loser. The kind of king that you take Jesus for will shape the life that you lead for him. And I put it to us this morning that Perverse nastiness aside, the emblem of the donkey lies at the heart of who Jesus is and lies at the heart of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Perverse nastiness aside, 
So from today's passage, please read with me just a verse there, a verse or so, verse 15. Uh, Here is our Lord, He is entering Jerusalem. Uh, He is entering the heartland of uh, the centre of His religious identity, the heartland of His significance in the world. Here comes Jesus into Jerusalem and uh, verse 15, do not be afraid, This this is how it's described, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion, see your King is coming seated on a donkey's colt. And at first his disciples didn't understand all this, only after Jesus was glorified did they realise. Would you please pray with me as we come to dwell on this passage a little bit more? Father God in heaven, we confess today that the things that we hold up as glorious, as wonderful as worth chasing after and imitating, are not always a good reflection of what is truly glorious and what's truly admirable, of what is worth chasing after and emulating and imitating and devoting our lives to. We are drawn in, we confess, by things and by people and personalities, by priorities which bear little resemblance to Jesus And in that subtle way, we reveal some of the uglier obsessions of our hearts. Father, have mercy on us. As we look to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, may we have insight by your Spirit to discern what those first disciples couldn't quite see, at least at that time, the true nature of their Lord, the true calling of discipleship and its shape and its form and its priorities and its pattern. Lord God, remould our lives in this, we pray. Amen. John chapter 12 and verse 12 is where we're going to pick it up from. I asked Alex to read from uh, a little earlier just to help us with the context here. Now, very quickly, where are we in John's Gospel? Where are we um, at the moment? I don't mean chapter and verse. We're about a week out from Jesus' death now, around about a week out. It's probably uh, the Sunday before what we call Easter. Uh, In fact, we'd normally, wouldn't we, preach on this passage on the Sunday before Easter in our calendar, wouldn't we? It's called Palm Sunday because they had the palm branches. We're a little bit out of sync there, that's all right. Uh, So for us, we're about a week out from from Easter, but for them, of course, they weren't looking forward to Easter particularly, were they? What was the special occasion for them that they were looking forward to? It was mentioned a little earlier on. Why was everyone headed to, flocking to, uh, rallied around in Jerusalem? Why was Jesus there? Given that Jerusalem's leaders, of all people, they, they wanted to find him, they wanted to arrest him and they wanted to kill him should the opportunity present itself. Why was Jesus there? Why was everyone there? Everyone flocked to Jerusalem to celebrate the annual Passover festival, didn't they? There we are, we're back in John's Gospel now, back in the setting, Passover, when you celebrate the fact that God saves Passover, when you feast to remind one another, yes, that God, he rescued his actual people from actual slavery, from those nasty Egyptians, back with Moses and all the rest, uh, the, the Passover event. Passover, when you hope and you pray that God would get a move on and do it again. 
Wouldn't it be great if this Passover, God rescued us from those nasty Roman overlords that we've got at the present time? Wouldn't that be great? What an answer to prayer that would be. Any time now, God, any time would be good. So with all of that buzzing around in the air, take another look. With all of that enthusiasm, verse 12, the next day, the great crowd that had come from the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, which is a pretty odd word. It's a weird Hebrew word. It sort of means to save. Come on, God, save. And they're pointing that at Jesus, you see. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Folks, what kind of, um, what kind of king are they trying to groom Jesus to be, do you think? What kind of king do they take Jesus for? What are they styling him after? You've got the Passover, celebrating the political salvation. You've got Hosanna, save, and they're pointing that at Jesus. You've got the psalm that they're quoting from. Perhaps you've got a footnote there in your Bible that tells you which, um, which psalm that they're pointing from. In fact, let's, say, let's take, take a little look there now, because I take it that they had the rest of the psalm in mind. See, they didn't have chapters and verses, so they wouldn't, they wouldn't go to Jesus and go, Psalm 118! No, no, they quote a little bit of it, and, and the idea is that you fill in the rest from your memory. You go, oh yes, yeah, Psalm 118, that's a great idea. So let's just go there and have a little quick look at some of the verses earlier. I think it sheds light on the kind of king that they take Jesus to be. So Psalm 118 and verse 10, we fill in the picture a little bit more there. Uh, here is the psalmist speaking. All the nations surrounded me, But in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me on every side. But in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They swarmed around me like bees. But they died out as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Perhaps it sounds unkind. But in modern terms, modern equivalents... Weren't they looking for more of a Donald Trump than, what's on the other side, than a Mother Teresa? Is that fair to say? I don't want to be unkind about either, you know what I mean? More of a Vladimir Putin. You don't mess with Vladimir Putin or he'll annex half of your country to Russia, you know what I mean? More of a Vladimir Putin than a Mahatma Gandhi, do you see? Now, to be fair, of course, I don't want to be down on all exercises of of power. There are times when we cry out, don't we? We yearn for some decisive action, especially defence, some kind of rescue. Sometimes we crave leaders with the courage to act and we tire of relentless evil and it seems that no one's going to stop it. Where was that kind of king for the people of Cambodia last century or Armenia? How many times down history have the weak and the undergunned, the oppressed or women or natives or Aboriginal peoples, you know, you name it. How many times have, has there been no one riding in on a war horse, riding in with grit and aggression and will to stem the tide to defend and protect? Too many times. Within the church, dare I say it, You can at least say that powerful leaders get the job done sometimes. Strong leaders, even aggressive leaders, pastors, elders, whoever they are, who are willing to step on toes, take no prisoners, well, they get the job done. The question here is, is that the kind of glory that Jesus wants on display? 
Is that the kind of king that he would be taken for and by implication that his followers ought to bear the glory of, the image of, I should say? Is that the kind of king? Here's Don Carson. He's turned out to be one of my favourite commentators on this um, uh, gospel, hasn't he, Don Carson? I keep quoting from him every second week or so on what happens in the very next verse. To report the ride on the donkey immediately after the acclamation of the crowd. So to report the ride on the donkey straight after that has the effect of damping down nationalist expectations. He doesn't enter Jerusalem on a war horse, which would have whipped up the political aspirations of the vast crowds into an insurrectionist frenzy. But he chooses to present himself as the king who comes in peace, gentle and riding on a donkey. So let's read again. So from verse 13, and just watch the contrast of they, but Jesus. Verse 13, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus, verse 14, found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. He doesn't enter Jerusalem on a war horse. He chooses to present himself as a king who comes in peace, gentle and riding on a donkey. Just notice, notice three things here. Firstly, it's John, as in the, the author of, of, of this story, looking back and telling the story. It's John, not the crowds. It's John who points us to Zechariah, to that quote, uh, that do not be afraid quote. It's John who does that. Come with me there for a moment to Zechariah because the donkey thing, it's funny, donkey, donkeys have all of this um, connotation about them, don't they? They're, they're kind of dorky or they're loserish or they're stupid or they're stubborn. You know, donkey can mean all sorts of different things. But what does it mean here? What, what is it that he's trying to pick up on? The donkey thing is about peace. So from the text that Alex read to us before, Zechariah chapter 9 um, uh, picking it up in verse 9, first of all, I think. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then the very next verse, it just keeps going into this verse. Here is the hope with this donkey riding king. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So it's actually about two things, isn't it? It's peace, not war, yes. But secondly, it's for the world. It's not just for you, O people of Jerusalem, you little crowd coming out here who want me to take on the world. No, it's for the world, this peace that I'm bringing, that I'm offering. It's part of the symbolism, part of the imagery here. He will proclaim peace to the nations. And Jesus, by getting on the donkey, he is saying, I am that kind of king. The one, not with chariots, I don't need a war horse to ride in on. I don't want to ride head and shoulders above everyone else, you hoi polloi down there. Don't arm yourselves with bows, we'll break those, sell your chariots, and my game is bigger than just you. It's world peace, O Jerusalem. There is a third thing, 
It's there in verse 16. So he rides in on this donkey. We have the Zechariah quote to fill in what the donkey thing is about. Verse 16, take a look there with, with me, would you please? At first, his disciples didn't understand all this. John should know, he was one of them at the time. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. The question I have for you is, when did they realise? So, in that verse there, only after Jesus was glorified. When is that talking about? After Jesus was glorified. When is that referring to? In John's Gospel, as he presents it, what does he pick out as the moment of glory? The moment of this, of shining for all the world to see, everyone can see. When is the moment of Jesus' glory according to John? Do you know? Now, if you haven't read much of John recently, um, or you find it hard to hold in your head, or you muddle it up with the other Gospels, that's, that's fair enough, isn't it? That happens. You might need to take my word for it. Christ's glory in John's presentation is his crucifixion. Not so much his resurrection, not so much his ascension. It's at the crucifixion, that's where Jesus is there for all to see. That's where you see the calibre of the man. That's where you see his glory. That's where you see who this king truly is. Not so much his resurrection or his ascension, that's not John's focus. No, if you want to see Jesus in all of his glory, look at him there hanging from the cross. That's where you behold the character of this king. That's where you see the God who saves. There, Israel, hangs your king. There, O world, hangs your hopes of peace. And so it was only after he was glorified that they understood the thing with the donkey. Do you see? It's only afterwards that it made sense that they got why he would choose a donkey and not a war horse, not a charger to go into Jerusalem. Ah, now I see it. That's the calibre, that's the character of the king that I serve. Now, to conclude, or moving to a conclusion anyway, it's one of those long conclusions, you know how it is. To conclude, the kind of king that you take Jesus for will shape the life that you lead for him. The kind of king, which is it? On the charge of the war horse, head and shoulders above the rest, in power, in authority. The kind of king that you take Jesus for will shape the life that you lead for him. Christ's glory is that he'd ride a lowly, humble donkey to bring peace to the world as he heads to the cross. That's Christ's glory. That he'd ride a lowly, humble donkey to bring peace to the world as he heads to the cross. Now, may I share with you a few ideas about how that might shape our lives? A few ideas. Firstly, we cannot be obsessed with our own glory, can we? Not if we're going to follow the Lord Jesus. We can't be obsessed with our own glory. I think this, uh, this little quote here applies to leaders, but I think it applies to every Christian, actually. The desire to be first, the desire to be first is a disqualification for Christian leadership. Why, why are you a leader? Why am I a leader? The desire to be first 
is a disqualification for Christian leadership. There is something, isn't there, profoundly anti-Jesus about wanting to be first, having to be first, having to be recognised and lauded. And if that person doesn't get the honour that they feel is due to them or they don't get the glory or they aren't given the special thanks or recognition, then their life falls apart or they lash out or they throw a tantrum or they'll go to the church down the road, do you see? It's not just leaders. It could be about my place in church. I've been here for a few years now. I've been here for a few years and in walks this new person wanting to change things up, wanting to do things differently or seemingly becoming such good friends with, with, with her. No, I need to make sure she knows that I am better friends with her than she is. Or, or we pray for growth in our church but then we see that growth in the church down the road instead and so we resent it somehow. Why do they get all the glory? Why don't we get the glory? Why did that person start going to church down there? Why didn't they come to our church, do you see? We desire to be first, we desire the glory. Someone comes in with a good idea and it really is a good idea. Some good idea that we should have been doing years ago but because I didn't think of it, no, 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 I don't want to do it, I'm down on it because I didn't, I wouldn't get the glory for it. Or I try to hijack it as my idea so that I do get the glory for it. God have mercy on us. The desire to be first has no place following after the donkey of Jesus, does it? Secondly, have you ever thought about gospel preaching, about evangelism, about sharing your faith as pursuing world peace? Take a look at the the very last verse in our reading today. We didn't actually get to it before, but verse 19, so uh, the the crowd saw and the crowd heard and then the crowd spread the word and it was marvellous. And then verse 19, so the Pharisees, that's the religious leaders who by this stage, remember, they wanted Jesus' blood, they were looking for an opportunity. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Just another little hint. And we're going to look more at this next week, actually. Of course they're exaggerating. But we need this perspective as well. Jesus came to bring peace to the whole world. They're exaggerating, but in the end, that's precisely what he went on and did. In fact, that's precisely what the the donkey-riding king was seeking to do, according to Jeremiah, to bring peace to the world. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend to the ends of the earth. Zechariah 9, verse 10. Jesus came to bring peace to the world through this humble service that would land him at the cross and there we'd see it for all to see, not through muscle flexing and the sword. Ours is not a religion of that kind, of that style. Ours is not a king of that style. And in a sense, that fuels my desire to do well at evangelism in a very different way to just the obligation. The, the sense of guilt that drives me sometimes, or the fear. No, I don't got to do evangelism. I get to play a small part, we get to play a small part in bringing peace to the world. Yes, peace with God, but as people take on the character of the King Jesus, peace actually live now in relationship with one another as they strive, as we strive, to live in the pattern of our King. Put it this way, nothing you will ever do more profoundly drives the cause of world peace than spreading the gospel of Jesus.
nothing you'll ever do, more profoundly drives the cause of world peace than spreading the gospel of Jesus. Christ is the King who came not to trounce and destroy, but to show his glory from a cross. And he prefigured it on a donkey. Now, in conclusion, brothers and sisters, here's my call to us this morning. Be like brave Alexamenos. Be like brave Alexamenos. See, Jesus is... Alexamenos was right to worship Jesus, wasn't he? Jesus is the rightful Lord over all of the earth. He is the King of Kings. Jesus is the Lord of Lords. Uh, He deserves all of our honour and glory and praise. It is rightfully given to him. And now some ministries and some preachers give the impression that even in this life, you'll get all the honour and the success and the glory and you'll conquer this and you'll become that and you'll triumph over this and you'll overcome it. Maybe, you might, but you might not you might end up like poor Alexamenos. But just come back to him for a moment, with hands raised in adoration. Alexamenos worships his God. Do you know, in the chamber next door, the building next door, to where that graffiti is, there's another inscription, and we don't know who wrote it, we don't know which came first, we don't know when, but it reads in Latin, Alexamenos Fidelis. Alexamenos the Faithful. Could it be that we'd be a church that so identifies with lowly Jesus that we're known for it and that that is the kind of glory that shines out? Not our glory, but the glory of the crucified Lord, Lord of heaven and earth. To shame in some eyes, but faithfulness in God's hands. Not from a proud and powerful church, but a humble and careful one that pursues world peace. How? Through the proclamation of Jesus. Through the proclamation of the crucified King. Oh, that we would be worthy of the calling that we've received by the power of God's Spirit. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, when Jesus walked the earth, He spoke of the call to take up our cross daily and follow him. And Father God, we remember each time we see the humility of Jesus, just how far from that we are. We haven't achieved that kind of humility on our own. Uh, We're pretty good at achieving pride on our own. Um, Father God, have mercy on us. Forgive us for Christ's sake, please. But Father God, we live in a world that so desperately needs the gospel of Jesus to take hold of not just minds, but hearts and lives, that we might see peace take hold of people's lives and out from them to the people around them, the communities around them. Father, we live in a world with so much conflict and pain and bloodshed. Lord God, as we take the gospel to our neighbour, may we remember that that right there is a work of world peace, that by your spirit, that is the kingdom that you're growing and that the gates of hell will not overcome it because you are achieving the outcome that you desire, the glory of Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, the crucified Lord Jesus, the one who will come again. And We pray it for his sake. Amen.